0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, we are in Lesson 3, which is page... Six in your workbook? No, page five in your workbook. Lesson three. All right, let's uh, open with a word of prayer before we begin. And before we do that, let's—I'm I'm, going to read to you Second Peter, chapter one, verses sixteen through the end of the chapter. And this is a passage that describes God's inspiration of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, "'For we did not follow cleverly devised fables "'when we made known to you the power "'and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. "'For when he received honor and glory "'from God the Father, "'such an utterance as this was made to him "'by the majestic glory, "'this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. "'And we ourselves heard this utterance "'made from heaven when we were with him "'on the holy mountain.'" recognize our dependence upon you to understand your word correctly and to think clearly and to think in a way that honors and glorifies you and we pray that you would help us to do that today inform us doctrinally what inspiration means and help us to come to a greater understanding of an appreciation for your word and what you have given to us and the treasure that is scripture steal our hearts with these truths we pray and make us and cause us to rest upon them and to rely upon your word and only your word as a source of all truth pertaining to life and godliness. Be glorified through this time and our teaching, the instruction, and our listening and, and interaction together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in lesson three, inspiration, what the Bible claims. Lesson two was a look at the doctrine of inspiration proper, what we mean and what we don't mean when we say that Scripture is inspired by God. And so we're looking now at what the Bible says concerning itself. And we looked last week at Old Testament claims of divine inspiration. We looked at New Testament claims regarding the Old Testament inspiration. And then we looked at New Testament claims for divine inspiration. So the pattern is rather predictable. We've seen that the Old Testament claims to be the Word of God. Then we see that the authors and the persons in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, regarded the Old Testament as the Word of God. And then we see that Jesus and the authors of the New Testament regarded the revelation of the New Testament as the Word of God. So that's the foundation, or that's the pattern that we're building here. And today we're on page eight. And we're picking up halfway through the lesson, we're looking at number five, the New Testament evidence for New Testament inspiration. So there are two evidences for Old Testament inspiration. Number one, the fact that the Old Testament claims to be the Word of God and it gives evidences of of the fact that it is divinely inspired. But then second, that the New Testament authors and Jesus quoted from it and referred to it, referenced it as the Word of God. That's an evidence of Old Testament inspiration, the fact that Jesus and the apostles regarded it as such. And then we looked at New Testament claims of inspiration. Now we're looking at evidences that the New Testament claims of inspiration are true. So that's letter five, New Testament evidence for New Testament inspiration. So letter A under that is that the New Testament writings were read in the early church. And I mentioned this last week, and we briefly looked at it. The the, the custom of the early church, just as it was the custom in the synagogue, was that every week when the people of God got together, they would read the, the writings of God, the scriptures. And this was true in the synagogues when the Jews would gather together. They would open up the scroll. Do you remember the the account in Luke chapter 4, I think it is, when Jesus walks into the synagogue and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from the scroll and rolls it back up and hands it to the attendant and sits down. This was the custom in the synagogues when the Jews would gather together. They would open up the scrolls, of the parchments, and they would read from the Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament era, the apostles commanded that the same thing be done in the churches regarding some of the New Testament writings. So, for instance, Christians continued that practice, and we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 4, where Paul gives commands to Timothy that his writings be read when the church gathered together. Do you remember we talked about that last week? What would you think if I commanded that you read my writings when we get together as a church? You would think that that was arrogant and and completely over the line, and it would be, unless what I wrote was scripture. And so Paul commanded that his own writings, his own letters, be read in the public gathering of the worship services. We have evidence that this was done so. Um, And Colossians chapter 4 is another example of this where Paul says, when you get together, read what I have written to you, and then you read the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, and you make sure that the letter that I wrote to you is read in Laodicea. Paul wanted his letters to be read in multiple churches and so that was, in essence, a command to copy his letters and to circulate them amongst the churches and to make sure that the churches read them when the churches gathered together for public worship. So that's the first evidence that the New Testament regarded itself and the New Testament writers regarded themselves as divinely inspired. The second one, letter B, is the New Testament writings were circulated widely. And again, we get this in Colossians chapter 4. Paul saying, you make sure you read the... Read, read, let's, you, let's try it again. <laughs> I see I have to I have to be at a certain speed when I hit the worship service, and so I need to try to ramp up and it's sometimes too early. You make sure that you read the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans and you make sure that this letter is read among them. Paul wanted his writings circulated in the early church. Letter C the New Testament was gathered into collections. Peter makes reference in 2 Peter chapter three of Paul's writings. There seems to be evidence that the New Testament church, even before the first century was over, gathered the writings of certain apostles into collections, where you could gather together, for instance, the writings of John and have those bound together. You could gather together the writings of Peter or the writings of Luke or the writings of Paul. There's evidence that in the early church, even before 100 A.D., that they they recognized the inspiration, the divine authority of these men and gathered their writings together and circulated them amongst the churches. Letter D, the New Testament books are quoted as Scripture. We saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul quotes Luke and saying, Scripture says that a laborer is worthy of his wages. He's not quoting anything from the Old Testament. He's quoting something that Luke said, that Luke records that Jesus said. So there's Paul quoting Luke as Scripture. And then we see that Peter referred to Paul as, as uh, inspired when he said of Paul's writings that the false teachers twist them just as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Peter recognizing Paul spoke by divine inspiration and that Paul, Paul's writings were Scripture. Uh, you see it in a quotation between 2 Peter and Jude. In 2 Peter chapter 3, um, since I'm there, I'll read it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2 says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by our apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. That was written before Jude. Jude, later on in writing about false teachers, quotes Peter as if Peter is authoritative in Scripture. So we have evidence within the New Testament that they quoted one another as as if they were quoting Scripture. And letter f- 5, uh, letter E, sorry, number 5 under number 5, letter E under number 5. Are we all up to speed? Yep. The New Testament is quoted as Scripture by the early church fathers. Every one of the New Testament writers is quoted as divinely authoritative and by an apostolic father. That is the the leaders of the Christian church within the first 100 to 200 years after the death of the apostles. So we're talking about say 70 AD all the way up until 250, 300 AD. Those immediately post-apostolic church fathers, all of them quote, they quote all of the New Testament authors as divinely authoritative and inspired. And some of these men who wrote knew the apostles personally and they regarded them as inspired authors of scripture. All right, any questions about that before we move on? So that is the New Testament evidence for New Testament inspiration. So we're making an internal case that this book not only claims to be divinely inspired, but it gives evidences that it is such. Yeah, Brad. Okay, so the question is, were any of the early church fathers quoting passages that are not regarded today as inspired or preserved in our canon? Um, I'm going to have to say I don't know for certain on that. What I do know is that every book that we regard as inspired today of our 66 books, the early church fathers quoted them as divinely authoritative. I'm not familiar enough with the early church fathers' writings to know, to be able to say categorically, they never quoted from the Apocrypha. It seems to me that they would have quoted from other books that are not in our canon, in our New Testament or Old Testament. But the question would be, did they quote them as regarding them as inspired documents? Just like, um, is it Jude who quotes Enoch? He doesn't quote it as if it's Scripture, but he makes reference to that. Paul quotes uh, Athenian philosophers uh, and Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. The fact that New Testament authors quoted other people does not mean that they regarded them as inspired. So the question would be, did the early church fathers quote anybody outside of our Scriptures as if they did regard them as inspired? And I I don't think that they did, but I can't categorically answer that question affirmatively, no. That's a good question. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, yeah, we'll cover that. Yeah, we're going to deal with that in time um, because that's the question. We're laying the foundation now with the preservation, the issue of inspiration and preservation. All right, any other questions before we move on? Okay. Number six, other evidences of divine inspiration for the Old and the New Testaments. And here we have to acknowledge that what we're dealing with in this section is somewhat subjective. Because we're asking the question, does Scripture, what we're regarding as Scripture, does it possess the qualities and the character of something that would come from God? Does it possess the quality and characteristics of something that would come from God? Now, admittedly, this is somewhat of a subjective assessment, is it not? Because Muslims would look at the Quran and say, yeah, it possesses the quality and character of something that would come from God. Mormons would look at the Book of Mormon and say, yes, it does possess the quality and character of something that would come from God. So as Christians, we're asking concerning our 66 books, does it possess the quality and characteristics of something that comes from God? So this is somewhat of a subjective assessment. The unbeliever does not sense this, and we have to say this up front. Um, By the way, just because it's a subjective assessment that we're making does not prove it to be false just because I'm experiencing it and I'm testifying that, yes, I am experiencing or assessing this to be true, does not in itself, just because it's my own personal assessment, it's not objective, it's subjective, that doesn't necessarily prove it to be false, right? If I dip my hand in the water and I say it's hot, just because that's how I feel it or experience it, doesn't itself prove that the water is not hot, right? It doesn't prove that I'm wrong just because that's my subjective assessment. So, But there is a subjective element to this, and we have to be aware of this, we also have to be aware that an unbeliever does not sense this or experience these evidences. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. So to ask an unbeliever to assess Scripture, whether he views it as the Word of God or sees it as the Word of God or feels its power or anything like that, you might as well, you might as well yell fire to a corpse. It's not going to get up. It's not going to flinch. It's not going to understand it. It's not even going to understand what fire is because a corpse does not have the ability to respond to that kind of stimuli. The same thing spiritually speaking with an unbeliever. An unbeliever who is not rightly related to God, whose heart's never been changed, their eyes have never been opened, their mind has never been enlightened, they're still broken and, and unable to assess spiritual things, they cannot understand or apprehend spiritual things. So when you talk about Scripture, you're talking to a spiritually dead person about a living book, and they can't assess that. So this is something, these these evidences here are things that can only be assessed or appreciated and apprehended by spiritual people, people who know God and have been regenerated. Yes? Yeah, but the, even the gospel itself needs to be revealed and understand by divine revelation. The Lord has to do that work because an unbeliever can hear the gospel and, and still respond like a corpse would to the, the charge of fire or, or whatever. He, he has to, the unbeliever has to have that regenerating work done in their Holy, in, by the Holy Spirit in their heart before they can assess or understand that. So the, yeah, that's what I'm saying. God reveals himself through the Through the gospel, that's right. Right. Through the gospel, yep. And and that is what causes, the gospel causes the unbeliever to be born again to a living hope. And in that, they have then a spiritual capacity to understand spiritual things. So we're talking about things here that are not necessarily the gospel itself, but these are spiritual apprehensions of spiritual truths, something that only believers can, can have or appreciate. Okay, any other questions or comments? A little bit of introduction there. All right, number one, it is the evidence of... Uh, self-vindicating authority. This is under internal evidence, letter A under number six. It is the evidence of a self-vindicating authority. The Bible does speak with its own convincing authority and it does not need to be defended. It's kind of like a lion You let it out of its cage and it'll do its work. The Bible speaks for itself. It defends itself. It just needs to be taught and explained. There is a certain self-vindicating authority that Scripture has. You quote Scripture and unbelievers are not going to sense or realize that self-vindicating authority. The unbeliever is going to say, well, that, I don't, I don't... I don't agree with that. That's just you quoting your book. Well, it might be me quoting my book, but it is a sword and it has its own self-vindicating authority. We don't we don't need to defend that as such. We're not making the case that the Bible is authoritative. It has its own self-vindicating authority. When Scripture speaks, we recognize that it has its own authority. Number two, it has the evidence of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit demonstrates that the Bible is the Word of God to the child of God. And it has always been the consensus of the Christian church that Scripture is God's Word, that the Bible is the Word of God. And I, I can tell you this. When, before I got saved, I doubted whether Scripture was true or accurate or had been preserved or whether it was right or whether it was man's Word or God's Word. I doubted all of that. The moment I got saved, all of that doubt went right out the window because as a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ, I didn't need a seminary course to tell me the Scripture was true. I understood it was true. That's the mark of a regenerate heart. That's the evidence of a regenerate heart. An individual who questions and criticizes and critiques Scripture and does not accept its authority and does not accept that it is the Word of God uh, is somebody whose salvation you, you have every right to question because the believer in Jesus Christ will embrace and will accept that authority, and he has the testimony of the Holy Spirit that the Scripture is true. Okay, number three, the evidence from the transforming ability of the Bible. The Bible claims to be a source and a means of regeneration and sanctification. Okay, so there's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. There's the evidence from the transforming ability of Scripture. The preaching of the Word of God transforms people's lives. That's just, that, that is absolutely a fact. And, and we see that transformation happen when we see people who are under the regular preaching of the Word of God, regular study and reading of the Word of God, how their lives are transformed and changed, how they change over time. Scripture has a sanctifying, regenerating effect to it. It transforms people's lives. Just the preaching of the Word does that. Um, Not only that, but sometimes just the proclamation of truth and the proclamation of of the Word of God has a way of causing regeneration and causing sanctification in the lives of people. Look, I could get up and preach for 25 years um, through Moby Dick, and nobody's life is going to be changed by that. Everybody's going to be the same walking in at the beginning of that 25 years as walking out at the end of that 25 years. Nobody will be changed. Nothing will change in anybody's lives. But Scripture, one sermon, has the power to change lives forever. Unbelievers can un, un unbelievers can understand certain things about Scripture, but Paul says that the spiritual elements of Scripture, that life-changing capacity that Scripture has, life-changing power, is only something that is assessed by believers. Unbelievers can read Scripture and they can understand. Yeah, I understand that God loved the world and so He sent His Son to die for the world, etc. I I read tons of I read and memorized tons of Scripture before I was ever saved. Um, understanding parts of it, but not really understanding anything of its depth or its significance. The life-changing element of Scripture was completely absent in my heart before I was regenerated. Does that make sense? I can read, I can read chronicles and read through the genealogy and understand this person begat so and so, et cetera. I can read the history and say, yeah, this is the story of the history of the flood or David and Goliath or et cetera. I can understand the details as it exists there, but I cannot understand the spiritual significance nor the, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in what he intends to do through those passages unless I am a believer. The spiritual work of the Word of God is only upon the believer. How can an unsaved individual accept the lifespan of those men in Genesis you're talking about? Uh, that's something that can you accept it if you believe Scripture is the Word of God and you embrace that. Um, I may, an unbeliever can believe certain things in Scripture are true, that they actually happened. For instance, an unbeliever could read the book of Acts and say, yeah, I believe that there was a man named Paul. He believed he saw a vision. He ended up preaching and founding a bunch of churches. And they can accept the reality of all of those things. They may even say, I believe there was a nation of Israel and there was a prophet named Nehemiah who rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem and the history is there. I believe that these things are actually true. They can accept that Scripture even says certain things are true, but the regenerating, sanctifying spiritual work of the Word of God is absent in the heart of that believer. It's not that an unbeliever will reject every last thing that Scripture says. They won't necessarily do that, but they are cut off cut off from the life-giving effect of the Word of God until the Spirit of God does a work in that heart that changes the heart and mind so that they embrace Scripture as the Word of God and receive its regenerating and sanctifying effect. Does that make sense better? Yeah, there's a, there's a divine, supernatural, spiritual work here of regeneration that we believe that God does in his sovereignty upon the work of an unbeliever that brings them from death to life so that they can understand spiritual things. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's a good observation. Number three should have the caveat that we're talking about only a believer. The evidence from the transforming ability of the Bible in the life of a believer, but it is Scripture itself and the preaching of the Word which also regenerates the unbeliever. So it has the power to regenerate and change the heart of an unbeliever as well. So I guess that wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a, a strictly a, a strict caveat there because it is Scripture. It is the preaching of the Word. We have been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and it is the Word of God that does that work of regenerating the heart. Um, So it has a transforming ability. Yeah, but I mean, it's not one to the exclusion of the other. Yeah. You can't have one, you can't have a regenerating work without the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is involved in that, but not in a way that is apart from Scripture, neither does Scripture do it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Jess, did you have something to add to that? Okay. All right, number four is the evidence of the unity of the Bible. So remember, we're asking the question, does does Scripture give the character, to have the possess the character and qualities of something that we would expect if it did come from God? There's the evidence of the unity of the Bible. And that's number four. We have 66 books that are written over 1,500 years by 40 separate author, authors from every walk of life who spoke three separate languages. And yet the Bible speaks with one voice on all of the essential issues regarding life and godliness. One voice. Forty separate authors separated by 1,500 years. Many of these authors did not know each other. Jonah did not know John or Joel. These authors didn't know each other. Some of them didn't even live uh, near each other in terms of time over 1,500 years. Some of them didn't even speak the same languages as one another. Some of them spoke Aramaic. Some of them spoke Hebrew. Some of them spoke all three, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But the Bible is written in three separate languages by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, from men who were kings to shepherds to fishermen, to plowboys, peasants, and and everything in between, kings and peasants. And yet it speaks with one voice authoritatively in total agreement on every subject that it addresses without any conflict or contradiction. I defy you to get ten people to sit at your kitchen table and agree on everything. Could you do that? I doubt it. But yet you have this this univocal, univocal voice in Scripture, one voice, where it speaks in Scripture on everything. It doesn't contradict itself, and they don't contradict each other. They speak in harmony on hundreds of different topics, political topics, religious topics, spiritual topics, topics regarding this earth, topics regarding heaven, the afterlife, God, his nature, the nature of the Spirit of God, the nature of eternal life, the nature of heaven and hell, divine punishment, works, salvation, all of those subjects, they speak with one voice on it. And that is something that can only be the product of divine inspiration. So letter B, now let's look at the external evidences. We have evidences from outside the biblical text. Evidences from outside the biblical text. So this would be, number one, the evidence from the historicity of the Bible. Historicity. Historicity. H-O-R-I, no, H-I-S. T-O-R-I-C-T-Y. Historicity of the Bible. What we mean by that is that it speaks on historical subjects, peoples, places, events, kings, kingdoms, rulers, nations, dates. And all of these things can be subject to verification. We can test these things that Scripture does reveal are true about history, and yet no archaeological find has ever invalidated a biblical statement. There was a day when when critics of the New Testament and the Old Testament, Bible critics, used to say that David, King David, never existed because there was no evidence of his kingdom until about the 1950s sometime when they discovered David's palace on the south end of the city of Jerusalem. And I've walked through David's kingly chambers where they have discovered things that are recorded in Scripture that are mentioned that are now in the ruins discovered on the south end of the city of Jerusalem in the city of David. I've walked through David's palace. Fifty years ago, they said David never existed. And they said this about the the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Acts. Even secular historians will say that is some of the finest historical work that has ever been written. They may disagree with the miracles, they may disagree and reject the uh, certain spiritual statements and spiritual teachings in those books, but secular historians will admit that the book of Acts and the book of Luke are fine history, because Luke is a historian of, with the utmost integrity and precision. And you see this in regards to all of the Old Testament books and claims of, uh, of uh, things that it covers in history. The kingdoms, the rise and fall of kingdoms, the events that it unfolds. There's some of it that we can't test. There are things that we have not discovered evidence of, for instance. But there are a bunch of other things that we have discovered evidence. And so no no discovery that we have made overturns a statement by a biblical author concerning a historical event or a timing or a person. So the historicity of the Bible. Number Yeah, they actually support it. Yeah, it's not just we're saying, well, it hasn't say anything. It doesn't say anything. I mean... Uh, these, these discoveries that we have reinforce what Scripture says concerning the events that happened and the way that they unfolded. Number two, the evidence from the testimony of Christ. And this is a powerful one. Jesus regarded his words as divinely authoritative, the words of the Old Testament as divinely authoritative, and he promised to give his authority and his words to those who were his apostles. So we have the testimony of Christ. That's an external evidence. Number three, the evidence from fulfilled prophecy. There are hundreds of prophecies, some given hundreds of years in advance of an event being fulfilled, and no prophecy that should have been fulfilled by today has remained unfulfilled. So the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. I think it is, is it Jeremiah or Isaiah? One of those two prophets names the the, uh, the Persian ruler who would order the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. Names him by name, Cyrus, hundreds of years before Cyrus was ever born. You have Isaiah describing crucifixion in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus was crucified, several centuries before crucifixion was even invented as a method of execution. And yet, Isaiah described it in in terms that you would expect somebody living 700 years before it happened to describe it. You have the same thing happened in Psalm 22 prophecies about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus that were fulfilled exactly as the psalmist describes them. You have prophecies about the rise and fall of kingdoms, prophecy about the destruction of Edom, prophecy about the destruction of the sons of Esau, Uh, uh, Tyre and Sidon being wiped out, the city of Tyre being a place where they would cast nets and it would be completely destroyed and yet fishermen would cast their nets there. You can go there today and has been rebuilt. city of Babylon has never been rebuilt. All these prophecies that God gave concerning events and people and places and nations, they've been fulfilled just as Scripture said they would be fulfilled. So the evidence from fulfilled prophecy. Uh, number three and number four, the evidence from the influence of the Bible. This is an external evidence, evidence from the influence of the Bible. No book has been more widely circulated, had more broad influence, been translated into more languages, printed in more copies inspired more songs, art, and discussion, motivated more good work, scientific discoveries, and geological discoveries, or stirred more love and devotion than Scripture has. It is the single, widest circulated, most printed, most quoted, most referenced book in all of human history. There is no close second to this. Scripture stands alone in that way, and it is the most influential book that has ever been written. That is certainly something that we would expect if it came from God, correct? It has the quality and character of something that would be divine. Number five, the evidence from the apparent indestructibility of the Bible. The apparent indestructibility of the Bible. You know that the Bible has, people have tried to destroy this book, right? There's persecutions. The Romans launched a number of government-sponsored persecutions, and at the end of the first century, all the way in, for about 250 years, the church was persecuted, and the sole intent of the Roman Empire and every Roman emperor that started a persecution was to destroy every copy of Scripture and to wipe out all vestiges of the Christian faith. The emperor Diocletian, by royal edict in 303 A.D., demanded that every copy of the Bible be destroyed by fire. He killed so many Christians and destroyed so many copies of the Scriptures that when they went underground and were silent, he thought he had succeeded in destroying the Christian religion. He caused a medal to be struck with the inscription, quote, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods restored. Close quote. That was in 303 A.D. And here we are, Right? You and I talking about this book. And where's Diocletian? Voltaire, the French infidel, French infidel, predicted that Christian this is one of my favorite stories, Voltaire, the French infidel, predicted that Christianity would be destroyed within 100 years of his death in 1778 and that the only place you would find a Bible would be in a museum. Within 50 years of Voltaire's death in 1778, the Geneva Bible Society bought his home and used his own home as a printing press to print Bibles. Isn't that magnificent? This book is virtually indestructible. And number six, there's the evidence from the integrity of the human authors. From everything we know about everyone who wrote Scripture, these men were honest, devout, sincere, trustworthy, reliable men who died for what they wrote. At least the New Testament authors did. From everything we know, we know that we cannot prove any motive on their part to deceive or to distort or to fabricate. There is no evidence that they corroborated in order to produce any kind of a sham. So does it possess the qualities and characters of something that would come from God? Scripture. I think these are all valid evidences that we have to look at to say, it does bear the marks of a divine book. Let me give you a syllogism and, and see if I'm going to give you the syllogism and then you tell me if you can recognize where this syllogism comes from. Okay? By syllogism, I just mean an argument or sort of a logical a logical step-by-step um, thought process see if you can tell me where this come from comes from the bible must be the invention it must be the invention of either good men or angels good men or good angels okay that's one option bad men or devils or god those are the three options it has to be an invention of good men and angels or bad men or angels or god those are the three options now it cannot be the invention of good men or angels because they would not make a book that claimed to be from God if it wasn't, because good people wouldn't do that, would they? So if they were inventing something, it can't be good men who wrote the Bible and good angels who wrote the Bible. If they're intending to deceive people, that wouldn't make them good at all. So good people wouldn't do that. It can't be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell for all of eternity. So it couldn't have been written by bad men. So if it's not written by good men or angels, because if it's not from God, then good men or angels could not have written something that claims to be from God but isn't, then they wouldn't be good. It can't be from bad men or devils, because they would never write something that condemns their own souls to hell and forbids all sin. So the only other option is that it must be from God. Do you follow that? Does anybody know where that syllogism comes from? Anyone? Nobody? I'm surprised. There was a couple teenagers who got this. C.S. Lewis, yes. It's the liar, lunatic, Lord syllogism. Remember that? Where he says that if Jesus claimed to be God, but he wasn't, then he was either a liar or a lunatic. If he knew that he wasn't God and he was claiming to be, then he was a liar. If he thought he was God, but he was not, then he was a lunatic. And the only other option is he must be Lord. It's the same kind of syllogism. In uh, screw, tape, um, not screw Tape Letters, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe there is a scene in there where uh, one of the characters uh, professor diggory uh, takes through takes takes the syllogism through with one of the characters in the line of which in the wardrobe where they're, where uh, it's been so long since i read this to my kids but two of the kids are like uh, who's the one that went through the wardrobe is edmund where two of the of the um, kids are talking with professor diggory and they say edmund claims to have gone into the wardrobe and and it's snowing in there, and there's a whole world inside the wardrobe that nobody's ever seen before. And yet he experienced all this and came out and told us all about it. And they're talking to Diggory about this. And, of course, Diggory says, well, have you ever known Edmund to be a liar? And I said, no, he's like the most honest kid amongst all of us. Have you ever known him to be a lunatic or, or crazy? No, he's, he's not really characterized by that. So if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, then what is He, he must be telling the truth about the wardrobe. So Lewis kind of uses that syllogism to, to make a point in his books and really to prepare us to think ser- seriously and similarly regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm offering you that syllogism. Either scripture comes from good men or bad men or God. If it does not come from God, it cannot come from good men because good men would never claim that it came from God if it didn't. Bad men would never write a book that condemned themselves to hell and forbid all sin. So therefore, it must come from God. All right, so here's our conclusion. The Bible claims to be the word. It has the characteristics of a book that is the written word of God. It has the influence of a book that would be from God. There is a logical, philosophical, rational, biblical, historical, and theological reasons for believing that the Bible is the word of God and claims to be or is exactly what it claims to be, that is, divinely inspired. And so we believe that it is so. Based upon evidence, yes, but it is still a volitional act of faith whereby we accept what God says about himself and about his word on the basis of faith. Because as a people of God, we look at Scripture and we believe that it is the word of God because that is what God has said that it is. And you say, well, that sounds like circular reasoning. It's not circular reasoning. There's an element in which we embrace what God says because God says it. And scripture says that. But when I step back and I examine this book to say, does it bear the evidence of something that would come from God? I have every, every rational, logical, theological, historical reason to believe that this book is exactly what it claims to be. So that is what the Bible says concerning itself and the doctrine of inspiration. Are there any questions or comments? Yes, hold on, uh, Emily. C.S. Lewis mentioned, he, he walks through that in one of the chapters of Mere Christianity. He walks through that, and then also the, it's it's presented in the allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm not sure if he if he walked through it in a recording or talked about it, but he did mention it in Mere Christianity. That's kind of where he develops it at great length. Yep, Brian was next. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say the Bible is subjected. I'm saying that there's a sense in which our... How our assessment of Scripture is subjective when we ask, does this book carry the characteristics, mar- the marks and characteristics of a book that would come from God? There is a subjective element in that because it is my assessment. It is something that we experience when we read Scripture. It's self-indicating authority. It's it's claimed to be the Word of God. It's spiritual transforming ability. There is a subjective response or impression that we get in reading Scripture. Yeah, not, not all, not, I'm not saying scripture is subjective. I'm saying that there is a sense in which our assessment of it is, is subjective. But listen, there's a sense in which the atheist or the critic's subjective of scripture is subjective as well. Uh, assessment of scripture is subjective as well because the atheist or the critic has to read scripture and say, well, I don't get that. I don't feel that. I don't assess that that way. Yeah, Cornell. Yeah, so the question is, we have testimony from outside of Scripture, like in Josephus, where he makes reference to certain things about Christians, Christianity, and Jesus of Nazareth. Would an unbeliever be able to take Josephus and compare it to Scripture and say, therefore, what Scripture says is true? Um, That would depend in part upon an unbeliever, because every unbeliever would probably approach that a little bit differently. Um, Josephus' mentions of Jesus are not as thorough and documented as the New Testament is obviously Josephus basically affirms there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He went about doing good and had followers and disciples. He claimed to be God, and there is talk of him being resurrected from the dead. Uh, That's as far as I think Josephus' testimony concerning Jesus of Nazareth goes. So if, if if an unbeliever is inclined to doubt or disagree with Scripture, they're probably going to doubt or disagree with any external evidence to Scripture that would point to the historicity of Scripture. They would say, I mean, if I were an unbeliever and you presented Josephus to me, I'd say, well, obviously that's a man living after the shortly after the events of the New Testament who himself just assesses this from what he heard. He's just talking about what other people were talking about at the time, which is, doesn't prove your case. It just proves that people were talking about the things that you talk about today. It doesn't prove that they actually happened. That's how I think an unbeliever could, have, could overturn that. Is there anything wrong with pointing to other evidences outside of Scripture for testimony that things in Scripture could be possible or true? Uh, that would depend on how you cite the external evidences, because if somebody says, well, there's scientific evidence that the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, because at the time it wasn't really the Red Sea, it was just the Reed Sea, so the water was up to about their knees, and they got all the way across for that reason. And so therefore, I believe that it happened for that reason. See, then you're, then you're overturning the teaching of Scripture and the authenticity of the miracle. But if you say, for instance, like Jason Lyle did in our conference that he had, there are all kinds of scientific evidences that demonstrate that what we read in Scripture is true. Science science properly understood and used, um, points to the legitimacy of scripture, points to the legitimacy of, of the things that we read there. that is a completely valid use of science in so far as it goes. We believe, for instance, that there was a worldwide flood. And so if, if there were a worldwide flood, what would I expect? I would expect to look around the world and see billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And so when I look around the earth, what do I see? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. So that scientific observation of what we see in the fossils and how fossils are formed is evidence that what Scripture says is true. So we can look at science and and. We can look at science and history and archaeology and use them, but ultimately our authority is Scripture itself. If I come across something that says, and and the danger of citing science to prove Scripture as if science is the authority, is that the, the very same science that you quote to prove Scripture that the flood happened can also be turned against us to prove that dead men don't come back from the dead. And so then, then you've handed a card to the atheist and the unbeliever that basically says, look, science is our authority and it proves Scripture. Well, science also says dead men don't come back to life again. So what does that say about the resurrection? And, and ultimately, when science confirms Scripture, science confirms Scripture. But when science contradicts Scripture, Scripture is true. And not science properly used and properly understood. I'm not talking about evolutionary science or you know garbage science. I'm talking about real, genuine, observable truth. Yeah, in in that case, when you're quoting that or using that, you're talking about things that are in the historical, grammatical, or cultural context which illuminate what happened in Scripture, things that the first century audience would have understood. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time.